Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Jack Cashel, a proud Irish American, was born and raised in Newark and grew up witnessing and feeling the far-reaching changes that transformed this once vibrant and practically idyllic New Jersey city into a crime-ridden, dysfunctional, and broken down urban jungle. His family and his siblings lived in York through the worst of the growing chaos, including the shocking riots of 1967, which has been made of why so many white people fled Newark, a flight accelerated by the riots. Was this flight at its core rooted in racism and some kind of uppity transgression by whites and people in power? Jack Cashel in his latest book, Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities, says his personal memoir, an account of what happened in Newark, sets the record straight. Jack lives today in Kansas City, but returns as often as possible to Newark, New Jersey, and to his native state, just to check on its pulse. Conditions weren't getting worse. Racism wasn't increasing. Racism was disappearing. This was the revolution of rising expectations seeded by uh, the media and by uh, black and white radicals. So when the incident happened, could have been any incident. Uh, the guy's name is John Smith. It was grotesquely misplayed in the many saints of Newark. Cops don't behave that way. I mean, I, I know these guys grew up around them. We'll have my full interview with Jack Cashel in a wee moment. And it will also be up shortly on my YouTube channel, Dig Life Deep. Jack has written a major library of books, including The Hunt, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up and The Conspiracy, The Hard Left Hook That Dazed Ali and Killed King's Dreams and lots more. Now get this. Jack Cashel, who resides during the summer in Fredonia in upstate New York for the last 35 years, was told by the local Darwin or Barker Library that it was no longer interested in his signing and discussing his new book, Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. The event was to have happened Saturday, September 9th. Now, what a strange and ridiculous decision by this library in Fredonia. Terrible. A summary of the book on Amazon notes, long accused of racism and white flight, the ethnic Americans driven from their homes and neighborhoods, the author included, that would be Jack Cashel, finally get the chance to tell their side of the story. It was released on July 4th. Now, back to this cancel culture Cashel was told of the cancellation through an email. Quote, We believe that the diversity of perspectives is crucial in creating a rich and informative dialogue at our library events, said Graham Tedesco Blair, the library director in the email recent developments the email ads have led us to re-evaluate the suitability of your views and opinions for our 
diverse audience. Tedesco Blair confirmed to a local newspaper the cancellation in an email but did not comment further. So stay with us. We'll have my full interview with Jack Cashel coming up. Before that, it's time for our regular segment of Future Shock 2.0 with the brilliant workforce trends expert Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back for Future Shock 2.0. What an amazing U.S. economy, at least for now. Unemployment is low. People are being hired. Retail is strong. Housing prices are up. The economy is growing. People are traveling, are on vacation. Consumer sentiment is not all that bad. It's quite positive on a month-to-month basis. And we seem to be in a good place. And yet we've had these constant interest rate hikes um, mortgage rates going up to maybe 7 8% hovering around that and houses are being sold. Help me make sense of this, Ira. What's going on? Yeah, John, and great to be back. And and certainly, I, I, we have a very appropriate title for this segment, Future Shock. <laughs> and then, as you know, I talk about never normal times. Uh, and these are, are, are both. So you're right. Uh, you know, unemployment has remained low, still hovering around 3.5, 3.6%. Jobless claims, uh, even, you know, last few weeks, they spiked a little bit last month, but then they came back down again. And we talked a lot about this with your, you know, with your colleagues uh, at Odeon Capital, you know, conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And Matt Van Alstein. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and super smart guys, much smarter about the economy and Wall Street than, (laughs) than I am. Uh, I, I follow them. I learned from, from them and other people. Almost two years ago, when we started to talk about things, you know, it was predicted that unemployment would remain low. And, and everybody said, no, you know, the interest, the, the higher the Fed is going to raise the rates, the unemployment's eventually going to catch up. It's always done it since 1945. Every recession that we had, when the, the, the Fed raised it up, it slowed the economy, unemployment went up above 6%. And I remember, you know, I asked Dick and, and Matt on the show and, and I was like, well, we, we can't predict where it's going to go, but sort of if you forced me into it, maybe 4.5 to five and a half percent, um, never went, never budged above 3.7. Yeah. It's still there. Uh, and, and interest rates still may go up. Uh, we have, you know, instability with China. We have a crazy political environment. Um, but at the same time, and, and this is where I'm headed with this, you know, I talked about the perfect labor storm since 19, almost 25 years ago, having our silver anniversary, uh, you know, 1999, uh, it started talking about a perfect labor storm where there would just be a shortage of people. And then it shifted a little bit, not a shortage of bodies, but a shortage of skilled labor. And then it became distributed labor. And then the technology happened. And, you know, then now it's a remote world place. So there were always, there was a lot of reasons that we were just going to have shortage of people or a misdistribution of people. But the prediction was there companies would have a shortage of labor. And we, and we had a declining demographic, but that happened. The, the fertility rate and the, and the birth rates in the U.S. dropped precipitously, much faster than we expected. Uh, Global uh, populations, a lot of Europe um, and Asia uh, countries, the fertility rates and population dropped much faster than it was expected. Uh, And then, you know, we have a pandemic and and the internet and globalization. And then, you know, as we talked about in other segments, we talked about colleges and skills and changing that. Uh, It's a challenge. Um, so, you know, is the anticipation is no matter what the economy, what the Fed, I would say almost 
what the the Fed can do, what the regulations could do, what disruptions around the world, because it is a global problem on on shortages. Um, we're going to still see relatively low unemployment, which makes it very interesting because as long as people are employed, they have money to spend. And I learned this from <laughs> that was Dick. I'm quoting Dick Beauvais on that. That was a wake up call on, on our on our our most recent episode with with you guys uh, when he said, as long as people are employed, they have money to spend. Maybe it's not as much as they want, but they have money to spend. So where does the Fed come into? Hey, they're still spending money. There's still a lot of confidence. We need to slow it down. We're going to raise the rates more. Yeah. But there's not enough people, and there are some. There are many, many essential jobs. I know healthcare is cut back, but you can't close it down. They're not going to shut down the factory. Uh, you know, there's yeah. many, many essential jobs, and and there's still a lot of people have a lot of money. Um, you know, now again, you can talk about them putting it on credit cards and so forth, but so it's a screwy economy, but I, I think that tying, tying our forecast, and this would be, I guess, my closing message here. I, I think we're still framing the condition of the economy based on unemployment. And I don't know if that's a very good predictor anymore because it's clearly not working. It's not like what the feds and the economists and some super smart people in the world have said, uh, other than there's pe people like me that have been saying, we're just not going to have enough people to do the, all the jobs that need to be done, even with AI, because every job now requires somebody to either understand how to use AI, to fix AI, to develop AI, to program AI. It's creating a whole new series of jobs, but people clearly don't have the, you know, the skills to be able to do that. So it'll, it'll be very interesting. We'll be talking to this for a long time. We'll have more from Ira Wolf on our next episode. Ira is a workforce trends expert, TEDx talker, a top five global thought leader in his field and host of the Engaging Geeks, Geezers and Googleization podcast. And also listen in each week to the top rated Odeon Capital Conversations podcast with the famed bank analyst Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group along with yours truly. You won't want to miss Odeon Capital Conversations for the very latest on our economy, the US and global economies, inflation, China, Russia, Europe, the entire globe, markets, inflation and what it all means for money and markets. That's Odeon Capital Conversations on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio and wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. My guest is Jack Cashel. He's out with his monumental new book, Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. And needless to say, the book gives a detailed account of Jack Cashel's native Newark. The book, by the way, is dedicated to his late dad, Newark police detective William T. Cashel. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Jack Cashel, welcome to my show. You're finally out with your book, Untenable. Uh, the last time we spoke, it was a forthcoming book about um, white ethnic flight from your native Newark, and you had a different title on it at that point, The Dispossessed. Right. But before we 
dig deep and going to um at the risk of being a little hokey again i did it the last time too great colorful effect i'm not going to say Cade Miller falter although i just did say it i'm going to say falter road jack um you're welcome well thank you the book's out and it's untenable and anybody watching this on youtube will see the book jacket on the screen and it details all this white flight from newark uh from the 50s through the 60s during the period of the rioting you grew up in Newark with your family so you had an insider's view and you have an entirely different perspective and narrative to the prevailing let's call it in air quotes liberal narrative that right. all the whites were leaving because of the black community so set it up for us here Jack what's the book about we did cover a lot of the ground in the previous uh, interview I did with you a year ago but this has the real meat and substance yeah you know I'll start with the title John because I my original title was to be dispossessed the untold story of America's great ethnic diaspora and I ran it by some people and I said what what's this about what's a diaspora you know what's dispossessed me so I said I had to make it a little more direct and uh, I got the title from a friend of mine who is I grew up with on my block in, in Newark. And um, Newark, by the way, rhymes with pork and cork. It's just like one word, <laughs> one syllable. And uh, we were talking, in, and as I mentioned in the book, virtually everyone that I know who went through that transitional period, being basically driven out of the city, the neighborhood they loved, became a Republican. Uh, it was a sobering experience. Partly because we we felt that the liberals, Democrats, had abandoned us, you know, and they just not only did they abandon us, they shamed us for leaving. So I was talking to this one friend of mine, and he's like one of the last. He was one of the few Democrats I know who survived as a Democrat. And his wife is very liberal, and she was hovering. and And I asked, "Okay, Artie, you and your mom, widowed mom, were the last guys out on our block, right?" I said, "Why finally did you leave?" And he said, well, Jack, it became untenable. And I said, well, what does untenable mean to you? He goes, well, when your mother gets mugged for the second time, that's untenable. When your home gets invaded for the second time, that's untenable. And I was thinking to myself, Artie, you just gave me my title. <laughs> so it's so much easier to jump into with a title like untenable. And it really describes what happened not just in Newark, but in Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, New Haven. Um, you know, Newburgh, uh, St. Louis. Um, and I talk about those other cities, but I focus on not just on Newark, but my village in Newark, uh, which is Roseville, which is a, you know, unassuming neighborhood in an unassuming city, but that is circa 1960 was, in the words of so many of the people I talked to, three or four of them use this exact same term, idyllic, right? It's hard to believe that. Any neighborhood in Newark could be idyllic, but by 1970, 75, it was nightmarish. The transition was that quick and that hard. You made the point uh, when I interviewed you last time that we talked about uh, racism and antipathy towards the black community by society or by the white community, real or imagined. You said that had practically disappeared, institutional racism, by 1950s. Um, it just did not exist, even though clearly there might have been some residue of cultural racism and some white people didn't like blacks. Some, of course, it works the other way. Some black people may not like whites. Uh, explain that to me and um, how that fits into what you're telling us here in Untenable. Right. I would say by 1950, I'm not talking about the South here. I'm just talking about 
northern cities like Newark, uh, by institutional, I mean by institutions. You know, you're right. There's some personal bias is always going to last. Small businesses might have discriminated, if, as they still do, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I mean, a good example is uh, Emiri Baraka, who's the father of the uh, the current mayor of Newark, Ross Baraka. Emiri was, uh, and I use his narrative a lot because he's both amusing and candid and uh, candid to the point of self-incriminating, uh, you know? Yeah. But he graduates in 1951 from my neighborhood high school, Barringer, which is largely Italian. He's one of four black kids in a class of 29. He's on the track team. He's in the science club, you know? Not a lot of street cred of being in the science club. Uh, <laughs> he's on, in uh, like a choir. And then he gets a bunch of scholarships out of college. He goes to Seton Hall, to Holy Cross, to Rutgers, Newark, et cetera. So he's, by 1950, the, the, actually the worm had begun to turn in terms of the attention paid by the institutions towards African-Americans. And he talks about his friends that he grew up with. And he he says this uh, against his own interest because he's condemning America. And yet when he's talking about all the guys who grew up in the streets and they're now, they're now working for the postal office, they're businessmen, they're small, they work for factories, they have all kinds of reasonably, you know, lower middle class to middle class jobs. This is now 19, now we're talking about 1960. Uh, and they were on a trajectory. Uh, the black-white income disparity narrowed throughout the 1950s. In a city like Newark, you could see it. By the early 60s, uh, affirmative action had kicked in, even though it didn't have a name yet. But they were already, uh, you know, civil rights organizations were demanding a percentage of jobs here and there and everywhere. In 65, you know, Lyndon Johnson gave affirmative action a name. In 1965, he also launched the Great Society. And the Great Society basically institutionalized uh, the then in-process destruction of the Black community. And rather right, than that, that's a good place for me to pick up on, on, on this because um, you've mentioned this previously that you cite the collapse of the Black family yes. and the radicalization of Black politics for contributing in great part to what happened in New York through the 60s and in other major cities. No, you're right. And it's, uh, I mean, throughout North America, I mean, throughout America, I don't know about Canada, but the um, what you see is that uh, starting, it had kicked in, the, the decline had started before the Great Society was launched, probably in the late 50s, early 60s. And what, what the bargain was this, was that, when the in, in the past, when blacks came up from the South, they were faced with a, a choice, work or starve. And starting in the 50s, 60s, the, there was a change in the zeitgeist. And, and it was essentially, you're not responsible for your problems. We are. Your problems are systemic racism are causing your problems. We're going to solve them by giving you a series of benefits. We're going to give you food stamps. We're going to give you reduced housing. We're going to give you uh, ADC, AFDC, welfare, we're going to give you uh, Medicaid. Uh, there's only one catch, and that is it, it's based on income. You know, this is all income-based. So if there's a married father in the house, you're not going to get any of this. Yeah, That was basically the bargain. And, you know, I tell uh, the story of Columbus Holmes through the eyes of this uh, young Black guy who grew up there. And that was sort of the, 
icon icon of dysfunction, you know, of and, and <laughs> uh, you know, built to, with great expectations, opened in 1955 for the first few years. You know, it's a multicultural, mixed ethnic, black, white, Italian, you know, various other ethnic groups. And then, as this young guy says, and then the welfare family started moving in, right? The first few years, the, the place was kept meticulously. Milkmen made delivery to the door. Man, yeah. bread did. Doctors made house calls. Within 30 years, 20 years, this place would be utter disgrace. It would be a horror. And he, he traces it. He came from a large black family, but it was a, you know, an intact family, and they worked. His father worked, and they, you know, had expectations for the kids. But more and more of these families started moving in. He could see it, and he could see the consequences of it. So the money that before might have gone for improvements now was going for replacing stolen light bulbs or replacing windows that have been broken out. Uh, and by the time I got there, I, I went back in 1982 to work for the Newark Housing Authority, and I. I, my last assignment was to assess Columbus homes because no one wanted to go there, even in the housing authority staff. And I had an armed guard with me. Uh, the place was a dystopian nightmare. It really was. And, uh, you know, then they soon enough raised the whole thing and they blamed it on the architecture. But it wasn't the architecture was the problem, although that was part of the problem. The real problem was the, the families that they had designed it for no longer lived there. You mentioned um, Columbus Homes in your book, obviously, and you kept the journal during yep. your visit and uh, readers can go to the book and, and pick up on all of that. I'm going to read a quotation um, from a review in the Washington Post, not related to your book, but indirectly, I suppose. It was to do with the um, Many Saints of Newark. Have I the title right? Right, Many Saints of Newark, right. I have it right. Okay, I didn't see it, but uh, my son went to see it. Um, here's what the quote goes, and it relates to that period, 1967, right. the riots. It, it didn't do very well, actually, in the end, even though right. The right. Sopranos right. did much better, and right. it was kind of a spin-off, as it were, from that. Um, here's the quote. Uh, Newark became majority black around 1965, but its potential remained exclusively white, and the ensuing forms of racial oppression in employment, housing, political representation, and policing set the stage for the explosive unrest of July 1967, end of quote, when we had the riots. Nonsense. I mean, it's just, a, it is boilerplate liberal uh, scapegoating. You know, they, they won't face the responsibility they, they have, not they personally, but their, uh, you know, their political forebears for creating the environment. And I, in the book, you, you know, I walk through that riot. Uh, I, I, no one's done as, and the analysis that I did is in that book. Yeah. So I didn't know a lot of this stuff, but what was happening in reality, and it was, a, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think the Tocqueville called it what the revolution of rising expectations. Uh, things were getting better. I yeah. mean, on the surface, families were falling apart, but things were getting better. The um, the police force was 20% black. The reason why blacks were underrepresented in so many areas is because their population was so much younger. So they're not, I mean, they may be 50% of the population in 65, but there may only still be 40% of the voters, 35% of the voters. And uh, and so they what they would do is they would take every statistic they could and twist it 
And then you have to ask, who are the oppressors here, right? Yeah. What, the police force? Are you kidding? I mean, the the people who are were blamed and scolded were my family and my friends. My uncle was on the front lines of that riot. Um, the um, And behind the scenes were people like Baraka, Ron Karenga, you know, uh, the, the black Muslims. They were encouraging, stirring, fomenting uh, hatred and anger and looking for a spark to set it all off. And so you blame the working class whites of Newark for oppressing, oppressing the working class blacks. Neither of us had any power, you know, to yeah. speak of. Yeah, exactly. And also there is that issue. Um, and we faced it in New York City um, through the decades, despite the best efforts, I'm told, of the NYPD to recruit more quote unquote minorities just a lot of them were just not attracted to a career in the NYPD. And as you said, then there's the demographics of them catching up to fill any open roles. Um, so, Jack, you describe um, a wonderful idyllic, that word was used by yeah. one of your interviewees, and, right. and your own words too, um, neighborhood peace and quiet and St. Rose of Lima, just everything about it was great. And there wasn't a blade of grass anywhere. Nobody was out because you weren't living in the suburbs. You no. had the basic necessities, uh, a community mostly of renters. Right. Um, by today's standards, you would have been considered in modern America poor. And, and everything, everything just seemed to function so well. And then quickly and then uh, rapidly, it just all fell apart. Some people have given us accounts of Newark back in that period and prior and, and would have described the housing stock compared to what we would see in other cities. It was, it was, you know, a lot of it was poor quality, not on a level with other cities, which is not to um, be dismissive of it. But despite all of that, things functioned and families functioned. And, and back to that same word again, it was idyllic. Everything functioned. But yeah, to the point of the housing stock, I mean, we were, uh, my brother and I were uh, the only uh, homeowners among our my childhood friends, about a dozen. Of, we were the only ones living in a home of our own. But it was an 1880s fixer-upper, right? The housing stock was crappy, right? The, yeah. <laughs> I was, was trying to light when I said that. <laughs> and yet, as I talk about later in the book, and, and the group that put a lie to all of the mythology about Newark were the Portuguese who move in in the latter part of the 20th century, into the crappiest neighborhood in Newark, the ironbound neighborhood, surrounded by, you know, belching, you know, factories and railroads and the airport and the ports. And uh, they took advantage of the low, and his old housing, they took advantage of the low prices, but they came with their families intact. They were uncorrupted by the welfare system. And unlike the Puerto Ricans who moved in roughly at the same time, Puerto Ricans had been pre-corrupted back in Puerto Rico because they, they were Americans, American citizens. They were eligible for benefits. By the time they got here, half the families were, you know, fatherless. Whereas the Portuguese, as in my neighborhood, you know, you saw the breakdown I did of the, the block circa 1950. On my block in 1950, it's just before we moved in, there were 363 people in 85 households. Of the 85 households, 83 of them had a married male head of household. That is the critical variable, is the paternity gap. All the It explains away all other gaps. Uh, you know, we had one friend 
we call him Broken Home Bobby because he, he was living with his, uh, he and his mother were living with her sister and her husband. So he had, but he had an uncle in the house, you know. Um, but he was such an anomaly. It was an embarrassment for him. That, and then at that same time, in Newark, 25% of the black kids were living uh, without a father. And that's when Moynihan issues his report in 1965. He said, this cannot, uh, is not sustainable. If this continues or gets worse, these numbers get higher, uh, there will never be equity. Uh, blacks will never catch up with whites. And uh, and besides that, all ethnic groups are are different in their cultural ambitions anyhow. So in Newark, no one was going to catch up with Jews because they were simply much more academically and economically driven. I mean, and to their credit, I mean, I say that as a, a compliment. Right. I mean, they contributed to the arts, to science, yeah, yeah, the yeah, Hollywood. Yeah. Extraordinary. Right. And uh, so the idea that, and then what they did too is by the 1960s, uh, the media were lumping all these various ethnic groups that have very distinct subcultures into the category white, and then lumping us in with uh, like Southern whites and you know Bull Connors and George Wallace, right? So we were reduced from being Irish American in my case or Italian American to being uh, white, right? That was our identity now, white. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we were bad. We were evil. You know, we of were course. the oppressors interesting what you say about a mindset a cultural mindset the welfare state the great society a lot of people point the problems of our present times at the rolling out of that big program and federal government spending um bill donahue of catholic league, catholic league uh, yeah, right. he's written about that recently and uh, he's done some sociological um, studies and he's noted that one of the most successful groups today in america are um come from africa yeah right come from africa and yeah, right. actually they um they're just pro-family they don't want handouts put their kids through school you know they have a real positive gung-ho attitude and their kids are doctors professors and so on and so forth some of them are blue collar workers they, they they're living the american dream the way that many of us would probably like to see return. No, it, it's true. I, I had a good Nigerian friend who uh, who fit that description, but he would, and he married a black American, but he wouldn't let his kids play with their cousins because he wanted. <laughs> so I mean, from the outside, they might look alike, but it's never yeah. color. It was always about color, and unfortunately, you know, the number that Moynihan were about twenty five percent. Today it's about sixty-four percent, and and it is uh, there's simply no way to catch up with that kind of family background. It's just I mean there will be exceptions. There'll be the Ben Carsons, and there'll be guys who break through, but uh, especially for young men, without a, a male, you know, disciplining and controlling and modeling behavior, it's difficult. You you believe that there's no there's a point of no return for the black no. community? No, we had a point where we could have turned it around, and that was fifteen years ago. Uh, Barack Obama is running for president, mm -hmm. and in 2008 on Father's Day, he gives a speech at uh, in Chicago, an Apostolic Church of God, and it's the speech that you would hope he'd give. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he says to the congregants, he goes, "Hey, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, uh, we have to acknowledge that the real problem in our community is the absence of fathers in the homes." And I'm pretty close to a quote on that. And then he goes, "Too many men are acting like boys and abandoning their families." Yeah. And then it goes through the 
uh, the litany of consequences. This is just for broken families in general, not even racially gauged. But, yep. you know, boys from broken homes are five times more likely to drop out of school, 10 times more likely to commit crimes, 20 times more likely to go to prison. Yeah. Three weeks later, on a hot mic and in a Fox News studio, here's Jesse Jackson talking off off mic as though he probably knew it was on. He's at Fox. He knows it's going to leak. He said, <laughs> Obama, he's talking down them black people. And then he, make, he does this. I want to cut his nuts out, right? Yeah. Yes, he, I mean, Obama, Obama got the message, unfortunately, never talked meaningfully about this subject again. In fact, he became, he joined the enemy. He joined the systemic racism crowd. And he used, you know, under pressure. Uh, and I, because I wrote a book on the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman case. You know, he was being pressured into identifying with Trayvon. And that yeah. meant ignoring all the facts of the case and indicting, literally, and arresting this Hispanic civil rights activist, an Obama supporter, and painting him to the world as a white supremacist. It was an ugly act. And it represented, I think, John, probably the first time in American cultural history when the left switched from historically, what they did was champion the guilty, the transparently guilty, and pass them off as innocent, starting with Sacco and Vanzetti, usually ethnic people. And they wanted to make a case that America's racist, et cetera. Uh, with the Zimmerman case, they took a transparently innocent man and uh, and presented him to the world as guilty. And that's a darker chapter in leftist politics. When you're willing to sacrifice the life of a guy on the altar, and Zimmerman, by the way, whom I've gotten to know well, uh, has a you know Hispanic mother, Spanish is his first language. He's got a black great-grandfather. He, uh, a year before the incident with Trayvon Martin, he led a one-man campaign to get justice for a black homeless guy who had been punched out by the son of a police lieutenant, and the police lieutenant's son never got justice. And he went from church to church with flyers, right? And the flyers were, were said, you know, and uh, all it takes for uh, good to uh, evil to triumph, or no, good to triumph is for one good man to do something, you know? But that was one Anglo-American. That's uh, Edmund Burke. Um, he should have quoted another Anglo-American who is uh, Oscar Wilde, which is no good deed goes unpunished, because that's what <laughs> yeah. yeah, so true. Ed, take us to the events leading up to the riots in 1967. Your dad uh, was on, in the New York police. You have family in the police. It, it seemed to be brewing. Fear was in the air. Tension was in the air. I guess there was a foreshadowing of something terrible about to occur, and you had rest of black politics and radicalization, it was expected in many ways, but it has been mischaracterized because of a, an incident, which reminds us, I guess, of the George Floyd affair. And by the way, his loss of life was a terrible tragedy. We'll get that out of the way, but a lot of people exploited that too. Oh, honestly. And and there are always these people like, there are, uh, the, uh, and this guy's name was John Smith. Right. I mean, it's like right at a central casting, the anonymous <laughs> character who is becomes a symbol like George Floyd or Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin. Right. Now we're and they tried with Jesse Smollett that didn't they couldn't quite sell that one. Um, but uh, in this case, it, the events leading up to it were and it's why and why Newark is because a series of radicals had descended on Newark and were actively fomenting revolution. 
not just black radicals like Ron Karenga, the guy who invented Kwanzaa, right? And then yeah. went to prison for kidnapping and torturing two black women, right? We don't know about that. I don't think they, Kwanzaa, I don't think uh, St. Nicholas did anything like that, you know? It's, <laughs> uh, then there's uh, Amiri Baraka, who was the ringleader in Newark. Uh, he wrote this book called The Dutchman about how a, you know, it was big head. He was big, you know, bohemian turned black radical. Uh, the Newark Mosque was uh, orchestrated the the execution of Malcolm X uh, just two years before that. But it came out of Newark uh, under the guiding hand of Louis Farrakhan. So all these forces were converging. Plus, you had the SDS there, the Students for Democratic Society. Uh, Tom Hayden, who would later go on to marry Jane Fonda and become a state senator, spent four years in Newark, interrupted by trips to North Vietnam to learn a little about radical uh, uh, you know, organizing. They were all seeding the ground. They were all telling these disaffected young black kids you know, who are increasingly coming out of fatherless homes and without much of a future, even though the world was being thrown open to them. And then, you know, all the civil rights acts had passed. My friends, black friends, were getting scholarships thrown at them for being black. They didn't know that. I mean, the other people weren't allowed to know that. And they were telling them the white man is putting you down and the white man is after you, blah, blah, blah. Well, by 1967, Newark has no upper class. You know, it has a uh, a, sma a small middle class. Uh, it is, um, you know, and, and the situations on the ground have been getting increasingly worse crime-wise. Crime increased sixfold, murder increased more than sixfold from 1950 to 1972 in Newark. Uh, and the, it was, people were beginning to act out. Uh, the Italians were tough. They hung tough. They took care of their own. Jews fled quickly because they were dependent on public schools. The Irish were someplace in between. We had Catholic schools, so we weren't in a hurry to get out. My neighborhood was destroyed by a highway, which came right through I-280. 280. Yeah, it took my house. And, um, uh, so that was on the air. War, conditions weren't getting worse. Racism wasn't increasing. Racism was disappearing. This was the revolution of rising expectations seeded by uh, the media and by uh, black and white radicals. So when the incident happened, could have been any incident. Uh, the guy's name is John Smith. It was grotesquely mis misplayed in the many saints of Newark. Cops don't behave that way. I mean, I... I know these guys grew up around them. Uh, I mean, they'll rough you up if you hit them, you know. That wasn't, that was, you know, you could get hit in those days if you touch a cop or you beat up a cop. And that's probably what happened here. But, and they thought uh, they had killed the guy. And the rumor spread that they had killed this cab driver. And uh, and that set off the, the initial chain reaction. And it took place right in the shadow of a huge housing project. It's the middle of the summer. Everyone's wound up. And it lasted for a week and killed about 25 people. And uh, it was the first big riot in the Northeast. And the Newark was ever the same. Boy, that just accelerated the the flight. You know, now people, black and white. You know, I cite in the book, for instance, the case of Sissy Houston, the mother of Whitney Houston. Yeah. I mean, Whitney and I were born in the same hospital. So, you mm -hmm. know, so for, you know, hospital racism. Uh, and she talks about her village, her quaint little village in Wainwright uh, Avenue. And then she says to her husband, John, who grew up in my neighborhood, by the way, 
said, well, you know, it's getting increasingly scary out there, more violence, more more crime. Uh, it's not what it like it used to be. It's not the, what I envisioned when we moved here. And then the riots break out in 67. And she says to her husband, we got to get out of here. So white, whites, blacks, Hispanics are all making the same decision. And, and three, three years later, they moved to the suburbs, uh, Whitney and her mom. Uh, but only whites were being shamed for that. And that was part of the reason I wrote the book, just to vindicate my family and my friends' families and all the people who went through that. Because the payoff on leaving was not a payoff at all. It was an exile. You also describe this violence that started to creep slowly and then quickly into the neighborhood because you were the victim yeah. of a mugging yeah. yourself at one point. I made a newspaper. <laughs> I'd made the newspaper. And so your dad was on the scene, and uh, it's quite um, great footwork and detective work, but you were able to find the culprit because your eyes were trained on the feline, and you, you nabbed him. But, of course, he, he incriminated himself foolishly in the classroom, apparently. Right. Otherwise, that would have been – I meant my whole life might have been different if he hadn't done that, you know. Because <laughs> my parents were a little skeptical. You sure you got robbed? Yeah, okay. You know, my mother especially said, you know, she's a tough old bird. She, you know, she's a scam artist herself, so she, <laughs> yeah. uh, as I say in the book, she was age fluid. She would make up whatever age was necessary to get something done. But yeah. no, and, uh, and it was rare that I was trusted with $3. I, you know, it was a change for I went to just a grocery store down the block. I mean, Orange Street, which is the end of my block, which just had every kind of store you could possibly imagine. Plus two movie theaters, our church, just two blocks away. I mean, everything was right there. Take buses downtown, take buses to New York City. You take a, a city subway downtown. I mean, it was, it was just such a, a viable neighborhood. Yeah. Ethnically mixed. And when we moved to the block in 53, it was integrated. And it stayed, the block stayed about 10% black for the next 10 years until uh, the whole welfare flood became began. And and it was, uh, you know, other than getting mugged, it was pretty, I had a happy childhood, you know. Yeah. At its height, uh, Newark, maybe in the late 40s, had a population of maybe over 400,000. Right. And then by the 50s, in around 300,000. Um, I think today it's at around 280,000. That's about right. I think it peaked at about 450, and now yes. it's down about 275. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, and I talk about this in a book, and I think one mistake Congress made, and I, you know, I, I talked about this with people who are anti-immigration, uh, and I said, when they cut off uh, immigration from uh, Southern and Eastern Europe in 1924, they, they stemmed the flow of cheap labor into American cities. Now, what that meant that all of the cheap labor that was coming in now is coming in from the South because there was no blockage of Southern migration, as there shouldn't have been. But it opened up a lot of opportunities for Blacks. But it also meant that Blacks became identified with the inner city, with being the sole group in the inner city. So whereas before, let's say, and if you're in a, a Jewish or German neighborhood and your house becomes available, maybe some new Jew, German immigrant or Jewish immigrant would move in and or an Italian neighborhood, Italians, new guys off the boat would move in. That was no longer happening. So by the 1950s, all of the ethnic groups in America and Newark, 98% uh, of those people had been in this country for at least 30 years. So they weren't they weren't new to the block. I mean, they were better educated, better assimilated, had better jobs, had more seniority. So when you start comparing their numbers with numbers of people who just arrived from like say Georgia uh, three weeks ago, 
uh, you're not going to get equity because moving from Georgia to Newark was almost as strange as moving from Sicily to Newark, you know. But once that flow was stemmed, uh, it became overwhelmingly black who were blacks who were identified with poverty and, you know, low income job. It didn't have to be that way. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Jack Cashel. He's out with his monumental new book, Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. And needless to say, the book gives a detailed account of Jack Cashel's native Newark. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. The Italian community, the Irish community, uh, some Germans uh, in the mix, and the Jewish community, they were the three dominant ethnic groups, let's say, when you were growing up in the right. 50s, and then the blacks were uh, the largest minority. I hate to use the word minority, but that's what people insist on using. They became that, and then uh, Puerto Ricans and Portuguese came in later in the century. Um, but in, in mid-century, uh, the uh, Irish, Italian, and Jewish uh, communities were still intact, culturally intact. Germans had assimilated or blended or whatever. There were a lot of them there. I don't know. Everyone was like one third German or something, you know. But it's important also to note that um, people left Newark um, in the 20s, 30s, 40s after the government, especially after the government rolled out various incentives for war veterans to set up a home in the suburbs. And there was a time when there was these slick advertisements uh, come live here with green space, open space, and those who could afford it. Some some did that. They just moved because, hey, this is going to be a nice lifestyle. I'm not going to move because I can't stand my neighbors or whatever. There was a quite an, there was a strong element of that too, Jack. Oh, sure. In fact, I, I remember, uh, you know, I debated once uh, a black professor from Ohio State on the subject of urban sprawl, which he said was uh, entirely racist, a racist phenomenon. I said, what I want you to do is when you leave here is go up to an hour up the road to St. Joseph, Missouri, the town of 75,000 people, 2% black, and they emptied out the inner city, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there was so much, and especially smaller cities like that, there was so much open space around. So if you could afford a a, a big lot with a, you know, a three-car garage, you know, and yeah. you think, you, do, you went for it. Yeah. Whereas in Newark, the problem was for for people in Newark, by the time the 50s came, the close-in suburbs, and you know Newark well enough to know, the places like Maplewood, the South Orange at that time, the Oranges, uh, Morris County, were too expensive mm. for working-class people. So they were, uh, and so many of my friends ended up in Ocean County, which is, you know, 50, 60 miles away, yeah. because it was the first place they could afford to buy a house. And the houses they bought were, you know, slapped together, you know, ranch houses and, uh, you know, in makeshift suburbs, makeshift communities. And I talk about that in the book because I have my own personal experiences with that, just semi-comic. But the uh, uh, it was 
when I, I was, was exposed to that, I said, God, what a letdown this is. Jack, but I also get the impression reading your book that your side with that, it was a total disaster in many ways. And for our neighborhood and the notion it was a racist highway. Well, if they wanted a racist highway, like that's what Mayor Pete says, who divides black and white neighborhoods. I couldn't find a single racist highway in America. Yeah. Uh, 280 went right through a white neighborhood. You know, the divided a largely white northern half and a largely white southern half of Roseville. Uh, 78, meanwhile, goes through Weekwig, a Jewish neighborhood, does the same thing. Um, they didn't care because 90% of that money was federal. And in a city like Newark, you see spectacular corruption. It's more so than most cities, but, and that accelerated the decline because you had, they like say, the Boyardo crime family, which was the model for the Sopranos, who in the, in the show come from Newark. The TV show is great, by the way. The movie is a disaster. Uh, they, you know, they start Boyardo demolition because they see these fat government contracts coming in. And then they, they suck the mayor, Anisio, into it, or he sucks them in. I don't know. But everyone's getting a cut. But if it were local money, if, you know, I talk about this, if at that time, and this is the crazy thing, the politicians behind the destruction of Little Italy, they leveled Little Italy, like this whole intact, vibrant Italian community, one of the, the largest in North in North America, to build this monstrosity housing project. And the people behind it, all the politicians behind it were Italian, right? Some of them were just dreamers, like Rodino, Peter Rodino, the congressman, uh, and others were schemers, like Adnizio. And when dreamers and schemers get together, and they're playing with the OPM, other people's money, yeah. everything goes. Uh, 90% of that money was federal. If that was all local money, they never would have built a project like that. I mean, no. they would never thought about building a project like that. They would have built low, small, you know, small, affordable housing. If, if it, the need came, they'd probably stick to the market. They wouldn't be flooding federal welfare money in, corrupting families with the, the lure of extra income if you just get rid of the old man. Uh, it didn't have to happen. And when it did happen, they couldn't face themselves. I mean, the, the schemers and dreamers. Well, the schemers didn't care, but the dreamers, it's so, it's so much easier to blame white people, working class white people who don't have a voice. That project was a total disaster. Um, all this federal money poured in. Uh, there's a great quote in your book, and you write, building design for projects, big or small, was never the primary reason a housing project failed. You can build the most elaborate building you can have elevators, you can have beautiful lighting, everything. But that's not going to guarantee you it's going to be successful living. No, it's not. And I saw this up close when uh, I, I made my uh, tour of the city. Uh, we, we, I spent two days with my uh, cousin, who's a police officer, driving around our, all the neighborhoods. Uh, this was just last year. And I went by uh, Bradley Courts, which is where we moved after um, the highway took our house. And it's a public housing project, a low-rise public housing project. At the time we moved there in the mid-60s or so, late 60s, it was perfectly functioning, right? It was about 80% white, uh, integrated, but, uh, you know, three-story buildings. Uh, neighbors were responsible for keeping up their hallways. There were, like, schedules of, uh, you know, of uh, work, you know, for you, you know, live here, you have responsibility. Well, when we went back there, my cousin and I drove by there. They have 24-hour armed guard there now. Uh, the place is a total wreck. Even though the buildings are good, and and you, I could see they pumped a lot of money into rehab for 
windows especially, broken windows, boarded up windows, graffiti everywhere, debris scattered all over the place. You wouldn't, you wouldn't move your worst enemy there if you didn't have to. And there was nothing wrong with the building design. At the time, everyone said, ah, this is the model building design, right? Not anymore. Your dad was in the New York police, and you mentioned him with great fondness in your book and um, quite emotional when I read it, and I'm sure a lot of readers will also be moved. Um, tell us what you can about your dad, because he came to your came to your mind when during a, a long stay in Ireland, um, when you were based in Galway, right. um, I believe you were working at, at you were a, a scholar, a resident scholar at UCG. That was my wife, actually. I was oh, your, your, wi your wife was, okay. I studies uh, specialist, yeah. Yeah, but but your dad um, was a real family man. There was some sadness there in the end. Yeah, it's uh, you know I, I weave his story into the story of the decline of our neighborhood. But he was like uh, you know the best father. I you know I he was fifteen when I was just turned fifteen when he died. I have no bad memories. When people talk about their father, how he did X, Y, or Z to them, I can't think of a single bad thing. Yeah. I mean, I got hit a couple times, but I always deserved to be hit. You know? <laughs> uh, and. Uh, and his decline in the cities sort of wove hand in hand because he was, um, you know, we buy this house in uh, 54. And my father was very handy because he grew up in a world where you had to be handy. You know, he, he had a total hard scrabble childhood. His father disappeared when he was about eight years old, never heard from him again. Uh, you know, he lived with his uh, cranky German grandmother. And, uh, you know, his father was Irish, so he just took Irish leave and vanished. Yeah. You know, <laughs> But uh, uh, and he was, uh, you know, he, he graduated from high school, Votech High School. My mother didn't go to high school, uh, and then you know he, they begin to get their life together. And my father gets drafted in the World War II, like all the other fathers. He goes to spend a couple years in the Pacific in the Navy, comes home, joins the police force. He gets with the GI Bill. He can afford to buy a house now. He doesn't run to the suburbs. He buys his. You know, ramshackle fixer-upper in the middle of Myrtle Avenue, which was an idyllic street for us as kids. Uh, and he spends, you know, a lot of his energy and his time and his motion keeping up the house and making the house functional and worthwhile. And in the meantime, um, you know, you know, he, he, for good, it was for us, it was good, too, because we could learn by, you know, helping and seeing. Um, and, you know, when he died, that was the end of that, my education in that regard. But um, so... But then in 59, he gets the message. I didn't know when he got the message. I just found out in doing my research. We're taking your house, you know? And then he has to make the decision. Do I fix it up? And he's a pragmatist. He says, what's the point of keeping it fixed up if the buyer of my house is going to be the state highway department? It doesn't matter whether the house is in good shape or bad shape. So uh, that, then that whole function of his life is gone. Meanwhile, he's moving up the detective ranks because he's just a classic good cop doing everything yeah. right. and he gets like i think is the detective third grade which comes with income uh, and enhancements he's working youth aid three blocks from our house uh you know wears a suit to work works nine to five or eight to five whatever and that's why he was able to help me solve the, the crime of my mugging it was like five minutes away and uh and then there is the last hurrah the last Irish Italian mayoral uh, face off, which occurs in 1962. And it was uh, against uh, Leo Carlin. You know, my family blamed Carlin for the highway. So we were uh, Adnizio supporters. Um, 
Adnizio gave me my Eagle Scout Award, right? And uh, so he was a supporter of our Boy Scout troop. He, he arranged for us all to go to Florida and spend the week in Air Force Base, best week of my childhood. And then, so my father, you know, votes, my mother both vote for Adnizio. But my father's captain, whose name was Murphy, was a politico. And he was involved in the Carlin campaign. And so when Adnizio wins, he hires uh, at the at the request of the Boyardo family, Dominic Spina to be the police director and hatchet man. And they start uh, axing all the Irish detectives in plain clothesman. And so my father goes from then from being a detective third grade to being a manning the front desk at the downtown police station in uniform from midnight to 8 a.m. Just total punishment. Uh, and that was across the board for Irish cops. And this is where you get a, that was the last ethnic, Irish, Italian, ethnic uh, fracas. You know, if nothing else, the the uh, disintegration of Newark united us in our, you know, uh, late life whiteness, you know. Uh, and then, you know, then my grandma, my grand, my the guy I thought my grandfather dies, my grandmother, my great aunt move in. It's a little tense. And and then when I was uh, just, actually was on the epiphany, January 6th, a day that has a different meaning for me than it does yes. for Joe Biden's, you know. Uh, he, uh, he shot himself, took his life. So, and that's what I, and I end the book, I'm back in, in Galway. Yeah. And we're visiting a, um, a family who are uh, living the old school life, you know, in a house with where the peat is raw, you know, just dumped on the fire, looks like dirt clods or whatever. And uh, they speak Irish at home. I mean, they speak English, but they spoke Irish, English with us. And I was thinking, and it dawned on me, it's January 6th. It was 30 years to the day from the day my father died. And here I am back where his family started. The original Cashels came over the potato family and, uh, in 1847. So it just seemed magical or mystical that I was there at that time. And then I realized that this was my 45th epiphany, which is one more than my father ever had, you know? So it was just kind of, uh, uh, kind of a surreal moment. And it was, uh, uh mystical. I was just sitting there, everyone else was doing something. And I was just staring at the fireplace and, and reflecting on, how and this i would ask african-americans to think about this too you didn't do the suffering those are your ancestors my ancestors are the ones dying by the roadside in ireland mine were the one coming over on coffin ships where you know 20 percent of them might not make it to the to the americas um they i didn't do that they did that so that i could live at the most bountiful time in the most bountiful place and the history of the world and i'm not asking for reparation i'm not asking for anything i'm just asking I'd be happy with a little truth. That's all I'm I'm asking for for myself and my family and my friends. Wow, uh, it was a mystical experience. I think you were out with the. It's pronounced Morans, I guess, in America and Ireland. We'd say the Mor the Morans, like, yeah. and they were living in a picturesque cottage out in Connemara, yeah. and um, you were thinking of your dad. I'm sure there was a sign of some kind there. Um, Carlin, who was in that last race, the last big uh, Irish American poll politician he was uh, larger than life um i seem to I, I now tell me this wasn't or correct me this wasn't a typo or anything he came from a family of 21 22 that's right that's an irish family <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't go to school no, I, 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 I presume his his parents were practicing catholics <laughs> <laughs> i guess yeah. they were practicing a lot you know <laughs> and they seem to have gotten it down pretty well too you know that was a uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, 
Yeah, our we were a family of four. We had four kids. That was about average, you know, from my neighborhood at the time. That was the Americanization of our those families because my grandparents all came from families of six or more. Um, but you know, then at that time, in turn of the century, America, the woman, average woman, lived to be forty nine years old. Uh, there was a lot of replay and kids. I mean, if you made it to ten, you were going to last. Good chance you're going to live to your old age or adulthood. But a lot of kids, half the kids, were dying before they were ten. So it was a uh, it was a different time and place. Yeah, it certainly was, and it's it's worthy of an of a, of a separate episode uh, at some point. And I'm going to get sidetracked if I bring it up. But the fertility rates are plunging in America, and we have a crisis on our hands. But um, I'm not saying go back to the Carlin example exactly, but certainly <laughs> need lots of young children. We um, do. Uh, yeah, I go to the average family size is seven or eight, really. So it's a there is some people who are who are chipping in and doing their share. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's get to uh, Newark today. Yeah. Um, how you view it? Because you've been back a few times. You're certainly back to do research on your right. on your wonderful tome. I call it a monumental work, Jack. I'm going to say that much. Oh, um, you. What's your What's your take? I mean, is there sketchy neighborhoods? Because there's been some development. Like we see Nike as a presence there. So does Whole Foods, believe it or not. Audible, that big podcast recording outfit has a presence there. There's some, a um, lot of urban renewal. What's your take? Well, Newark has a great location. I mean, it's you know, it's a half hour from New York City. It's got the airport there, which is the most accessible airport to New York City. It's got this huge train station, trains coming in from all over. Um, so in the area around downtown, they fortified, literally, and uh, and invested tons and tons of money in. Um, yeah, I just to tell you the experience of my brother-in-law, who is, uh, whose parents are from Ireland. Uh, and uh, he called my book the... Uh, my I, uh, Angela's Ashes, just <laughs> kind of fun. It went through my mind, funnily enough. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, but not, not quite Angela's. I does there's a bitter tone in Angela's Ashes, so uh, yeah, not right. necessarily yeah. similar. No, right. Mine is a little more upbeat. Mine's you know, yeah. in American style. You know, I mean, my, I I didn't grow up the way uh, way the help me out. What's his name? I'm sorry. I uh, Frank McCord. Frank McCord. I met him. I met all three of the McCord brothers. By the way, I met uh, even Michael McCord, whom no one else met. You know. Yeah, I met uh, Michael uh, a couple of years ago too. Yeah, in a bar in San Francisco. Where hey, there there. you go. We had a very. <laughs> I had two days with him, believe it or not, but quite fun. The Washington Square Bar, I think that was the name of it. If I remember yeah. right. But uh, so my brother-in-law is a success, successful entrepreneur, and he says, "Oh, there's great opportunities in Newark. We can move our business there." Uh, he said he gets a downtown location. Within a year, they were gone. Too much uh, crime, threats of crime, uh, threats of just walking to and from work at late hours. Uh, no one wanted to do it. You couldn't recruit there. And driving through the rest of the city, um, you know, there's a couple neighbors that have hung on that are okay, but and the Portuguese neighborhood is thriving, right? Yeah. It's on the other side of the train station. But uh, like my old neighborhood, nightmare. Uh, the, the best neighborhood, Valesburg, when when I was a kid, was like the our kind of elite neighborhood, is now horror. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to go there. You wouldn't want to spend 15 minutes there. I was a little anxious, even with my cousin in a car. You know, we had ran into certain kind of impasses, um, and then the rest of the city is um, dirty, dysfunctional. Uh, all the neighborhoods, you know, we drove through Weekway. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to live there. I mean, yeah. you might be able to find some gentrified housing around downtown universities, but uh, in general, I, I don't see it coming back until they level everything and then move everyone out and start yeah. all over again. 
Yeah. You're not impressed by the current leadership in City Hall in York and the current mayor? Well, you know, the, we, they had a chance when Cory Booker was mayor because he was he was honest, you know, and that was such a shock to the Newark system that they tried to bring him down uh, after years of Sharp James and uh, uh, Gibson and all these clowns. But um, I, I don't trust Barack. I, don't, I mean, I, you know, he, he played his hand when they just gratuitously pulled down the Columbus statue. Yeah. And which had been donated by the Italian community, which was a big deal to them. And they put like lots of money into that. And it was a Newark monument for, oh, from, from 1892. It was the year it went up. No, it was 1920s. I'm sorry. Uh, but it was there. Maybe it was 1892. But anyway, I was up there for a long time. It was funded by the Italian community. And uh, Barack didn't even talk to, talk to anyone. They just took it down. They didn't check with the Italian community. It was, it was shocking. It was a, a terrible um, travesty of justice. It was a horrible act of desecration. You should explain, of course, that he's a chip off the old block, perhaps, but maybe a milder form. His dad obviously features in your book. Yeah, Ross Baraka, I mean, Muri Baraka was a radical ahead of his time. Uh, Ross Baraka is a radical of his time. He's just another, you know, woke mayor in a woke city and... Uh, is, I don't see anything special about him or interesting. Cory Booker was an uh, anomaly, but Ross Brock is not. He's he could be anyone Baraka or anyone Ross anything. And and then you know, with, and the worst part of that whole statue deal is they were supposed to keep it in storage, and they found it lying on a roadside along I two eighty, probably my own neighborhood. So that's uh, there's another uh, Christopher Columbus statue which was hijacked by by some Italians uh, to preserve it. You know they. So I had a midnight uh, uh, crew of construction guys came in and and strategically took it before the mobs could get to it. Oh my and gosh. What do we get instead? We get a 700 pound statue of George Floyd sitting on a bench in front of City Hall, right? Any hopeful message here, uh, Jack? I know you don't see any wiggle room or room for reform the way things are headed, but we like some optimism at times. Yeah, I do, we do, and I think uh, I'm always an optimist as far as I could be. I, you know, I saw uh, just a shred of hope in last week or so when uh, the NAACP of Oakland, California, said enough's enough. We need police. We need order. We need discipline, and you need organizations like that uh, to make those steps. There's not much you or I could do, John. I mean, I could talk about it. You know, I could write about it. I could. Um, do it on C-SPAN, where it'll be airing on August 13th, four times, and probably a future Sunday. So check that out. But, uh, uh, right now, uh, there's not much, uh, alas, we could do. I, I would say people can turn their cities around. Look what happened in New York City. Yeah. In 1992, in the four years under Dinkins, the city was averaging 2,500 homicides a year. After eight years of Giuliani and 12 years of Bloomberg, who carried out Giuliani's Get Tough policies, they had gotten the annual average down about three or 400. Yeah. They were saving 2,000 lives a year. Five years ago, New York City was the safest big city in the world. You know, you could walk around. I, I remember driving into lower Manhattan and, and looking like Disney World for young adults, you know? I mean, people just walking around blithely, unconcerned, uncaring. Uh, that's not true now. No. But you need... They need another Giuliani, and sooner or later, they're going to figure that out. I, I agree. I agree. We're almost out of time, Jack, but the name of your book, everybody should read it, Untenable, 
the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. Quick question, and uh, the photo on the jacket, uh, can you explain who that family is, all smiles, and seem like they're ready to go to a First Communion event or something? Uh, I, I figured out the date. That's my family. Oh. Uh, and uh, I'm on the right. I'm on the I'm the third boy. Oh, I can see the resemblance. Oh, my little goodness. sister's there. And, and your the, mom and your dad is in the middle? Uh, no, that's not my dad. That's my brother. Oh, your brother. Okay. In fact, when I gave the book to the cover designer, he came back with a version with my brother taken out of it. I said, why don't you take my brother out? He goes, oh, I didn't know that was your brother. My brother just turned 16. He was a big guy. He was a big guy, yeah. And uh, I said, no, he, he said it looks better without him there. I said, you tell that to his four daughters <laughs> you know, that, is, that they're uh, now my uh, my niece is called uh, Covergate. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I had yeah. a fight to get him back in. And no, and it was Easter Sunday. Right, ah. that's my, the, the bonnet on my sister and everything, you know. Does not just tell us something as well. You emphasize something tradition. Yes, it's our society is losing that sense of tradition. Like that was a really important event, and everybody was excited about it and kept everything everything glued together, and people look forward to it. And I'm, I'm sure back in the day, it was it was done in a, a simple kind of way, but in an elegant way too. That's exactly right, and not only. You know, and, and our family photo could have been any family's photo that day because everyone yeah. would have been dressed like that. Black families were particularly keen on uh, Easter. And they really, you know, they really dressed up, went to church. It was a big day in their culture, too. And it was church-based. It was church-centered. Um, and you pull the apps, you pull the church. The church was the center of our life. Yeah. And my neighborhood was overwhelmingly Catholic and Italian, Irish, Polish, whatever, but Catholic. And... Uh, uh, when you pull that church out of the life of a community, well, you're pulling the heart out. You're pulling the heartbeat out. It, I don't know what do you center the community around. And you know, I write about that when I my misadventures in Ocean County. But uh, when when it's centered around a crappy little shopping center, you know, and, uh, there's no center. And and that's what the book is about: is about finding centrality in your life, finding the heartbeat of your community. And when you take that away. You know, one one just commenter, just someone who comments me on Facebook said, Jack, he goes, he goes, this book is for people who can't go home again to explain to what life was like to people who can go home. And we, he said it much more elegantly than that. But basically, that's it. You know, our life after Newark was OK. We had a good life. I can't complain at all. But there was never a home I could go home to. So when we met as a family, just like so many New Jersey families or families in other cities across the few recruited plain, we met in down the shore or someplace. You know, we couldn't go back to grandma's house, you know, or let's go back to the old neighbor. No, there was no old neighbor to go back to, you know. So but it was a good experience because I learned a lot and I finally had a chance to tell the story. Fond memories. Um, Jack Cashel, thank you for being my guest. Hey, John, thanks for having me. You did a great job. Love it. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. 
That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.